If you brought a Bible today, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, or you can grab a Bible in front of you. Yours is not as big as mine, but that's okay. Don't feel, don't feel less than. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, as you're turning, I will uh, tell you, Lauren made mention of baptism in the first service, and uh, I was on the front row during baptism watching one of our elders, one of my best friends, John Hurdle, baptize uh, Lane. Um, Lane was a young man, but a big, big young man. I mean, a, I mean, a hoss daddy. So there was tension in the room. We were celebrating Lane's story of life change and what God's doing in him. But we were all, I mean, I was sitting there front row seat, literally going, man, I hope John gets this guy up out of the water. I mean, it was, we were all cheering and praying for him. And, and he did. It reminded me of the story years ago when I was off one Sunday. I had plans out of town to go to a New Orleans Saints football game when they played the Minnesota Vikings. Y'all remember that playoff year down there in New Orleans? And I was slated to baptize someone, and I really just wouldn't have been a good and godly thing to get out of that. So I'm like, I can go to church, baptize them, and then sneak out. And I I had friends waiting on me. Y'all know some of Jonathan Grantham and Tyler Hendricks, uh, Seth Hood's uh, brother Stephen. They were in a getaway car, we called it. So I baptized them and, you know, and just headed out. It was real quick. I believe, I believe Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, my original Savior, you know, baptized them. And anyway, I bumped into the guy not long ago out in public, and he was telling that story. And he said, RG in front of people, because he, he didn't even bring me back up. He just dunked me and didn't even bring me back up. Of course, that's not true. I, I, you know, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. But I remember I didn't hug him or pray. I just got out of there and got to the, uh, the getaway car. So, yeah, true story. Susan will confirm it. First Corinthians 3. We there? First Corinthians 3, chapter... Uh, chapter 3 and verses 1, no, verses 6 through 17. Here we go. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace that was given to me, I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. But each one of you is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you know yourselves that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Here, Paul gives us uh, three metaphors. Uh, He says that you are God's field verse 9 and then he right I mean back to back he says you'll see it if your Bible's open you are God's field then he says you're God's building and then verse 16 he says that you are God's temple and each metaphor brings beauty and meaning and significance with it I think of a field and one of my favorite passages if you've been around me you know this is Solomon in Proverbs 24 it says he walks by a field and when he walked by this field he took the time to make observation and like any good teacher or leader he observed the field and he, what he saw was thorns and thistles that were growing up. He saw weeds that were coming up from the ground. He saw a, a stone wall that was in disrepair. And he asked the question, what had happened here? 
And his answer was that it wasn't fire or earthquake or pestilence or the ravages of war. It was negligence. He, he, in fact, he utters one of Solomon's wisest sayings. It's kind of famous. Uh, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little what? Folding of the hands. Poverty will come upon you and neglect this field. So Solomon in poetry is saying, oh, this thing could have been something. This field could have grown. It could have had bounty and harvest. It could have brought uh, grapes and, and wine. It could have added to festivities and feasts and occasions. It could have been used for celebration to bring people together and to honor God, but it just laid there. And so I can't help but ask you this morning with this first metaphor, if your life is like a field, you are God's field, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. And he's, he's wanting them to see their potential. But he's also disappointed. You remember in week one and two, we talked about this woman, Chloe. Chloe had reported that this church that had been planted by Paul and other leaders, uh, Timothy and Silas were there, Apollos was there, and others had, had been significant, really a rock star team of early Jesus followers. And then division came. And he said, you're God's field. There's something there. There's this potential but it's laid fallow. And what a tragedy. And I want to ask you, uh, does your life reflect fruit? Does it reflect its potential? If you're God's field, what are you growing? And what, are, what fruit do other people see in you? Or are you more like the crabgrass on the lawn of life? And there's, it's in disrepair. And it's negative. And I, I don't want us to miss our potential. You are God's field. You're also God's building. You're God's building. And look at what I love these passages, a couple of them in Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 4 uh, says this, For every house is built by somebody, but God is the builder of everything. And then in chapter 11, Moses, I'm sorry, Abraham, this is said about him, For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Uh, over 80 times in the Bible, we see God as a builder. God is a builder, and then he says to us, You are a building. You are a building. You are my building, and I desire to build something in you. What's the result? Every life is, um, every, everyone in the room is building some type of house, house being analogous to your soul, to your life, to your character. Everybody is building a house, and you build your house. Um, I wonder, under God's watchful eye, what kind of house are you building currently? You'll never become what you're not now becoming. What kind of house are you building? You build this house by the choices that you make. You build this house by the words that you speak into others. You build this house by the words that you hear. By the way, we're not hearing very well these days. I've noticed of talking to my counselor friends and being in sessions myself. Or we're, not, we're not hearing what we need to be hearing. You're missing some messages from your loved ones. You're hearing what they're not saying. And sin does that to us. It, our passion gets polluted. Our devotion gets diluted. We begin to hear things that aren't true. And uh, your life will be shaped by the words you speak and also the words that you hear. And all the daily choices that you make. Netflix, marathons, or sleep. A lot of television or exercise. Toxic friendship or mentors and guides. Um, griping and complaining or thankfulness and gratitude, blaming other people for everything or responsibility, overthinking or taking action. These are the type of choices that go into the house that you're constructing. What kind of house are you building? You guys ever watch the show House Hunters or House Hunters International? 
uh, we were, Susan and I were on a long HGTV marathon years ago. We've grown past that mostly, but we loved House Hunters uh, International. Anybody, House Hunters? And uh, this is a great show. It featured a couple, like they were from like Abilene, Texas, and they're like making a move to Switzerland. And she's a coach and he's a teacher. And you're like, what are they, you know, and they're looking, they decide on like a $2.6 million palatial mountainside estate. I'm like, what are we doing wrong here? We crunch numbers. They just don't work out like this, you know, but they move and they, they, and they, they suck you in like every good television show. Cause you see the couple going, what about this one? They give you three options and they walk through them and all this. And you're right there cheering. And you, if you're watching it with someone, always better to watch House Hunters International with a loved one. And you're kind of uh, arguing about which one you would take and why it's very self-revealing leads to some fights and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, they suck you in, but it's almost like, it's almost like Paul is saying here in this text that God is on a, House Hunter International Tour. And he's coming from up there to down here. And he's saying that I've chosen a house and the house is you. We are God's house. Now let me ask you, what kind of house are you? Real estate people, if you're savvy in real estate, you know there's many types of terms used in real estate. One type of term is a, a, a house or apartment or townhome can be called a turnkey place. You're aware of a turnkey place? Other homes, many of you live in these, they're fixer-uppers, right? How many of you live in a fixer-upper place where you have, to do, you have to do a lot of turnkey house, apartment, or townhouse? It's just you, op- you open it up and it's ready for you. No work really needed. Now, let me ask you, what kind of house are you? Are you, are you a turnkey house or a fixer-upper? I asked the 930 to answer out loud. Are you all willing to take a stab at what the preacher's looking for? Are you a turnkey house or a fixer-upper? You're, thank you. I, I hear the young voices, Jack, Jack Lassiter from the front row. Jack, shaming all of you. Um, even if you got it right, he was, he was uh, more audible. But uh, you and I, hey, look, the preacher included, we are a fixer-upper. Look at the person next to you and say, you are a fixer-upper. Even if you didn't come to church with him, just look at him. I know it's going to be great. Say, you are a fixer-upper. Now look back and say, you ain't no turnkey. You ain't no turnkey, Jack. You're a fixer-upper. Tell your dad he's a fixer-upper. Tell your mama she's a fixer-upper. Listen, we got work to do, but why is it that we're not patient with each other? That's what I love about the Apostle Paul is that he's writing to this church. We looked at this in week one, and man, they they were riddled with division. They were ripe with strife. They were arguing over the order of worship and who their favorite preacher was. They were devaluing spiritual gifts and overinflating others. They, were, uh, they had uh, sexual sin among leaders that they weren't dealing with. They were covering it up, which doesn't go well in the church. They had all these problems. And Paul's writing, he says, you're brothers and you're sisters and you're called and you're chosen and you're sanctified. And he believes in them because I think he realizes that they're not a turnkey church, just like you aren't and like I'm not. We're all fixer-uppers. We're all in this together, and we need to have more patience with each other. So what kind of house, again, I ask, are you building? Um, I'm not a very good builder. For those who know me well, they're going to laugh now, but I just don't fix things. But early in our marriage, uh, when we, were, we knew that we were expecting our first uh, baby, I decided that I would... Uh, build a changing table and it didn't really go that well and so I I tried plan b which is just get one that's almost assembled but it it requires some assembly as the boxes say and it features a couple on the cover smiling and says this is um, assembly will take 15 minutes 
And it, uh, it, it, that's a lie, just an absolute lie. And about an hour into this thing, I was getting blisters, and I was like, the screws were not screwable, and I was like hammering it in with a nail. And uh, it was just, it just, you know, was not really a thing of beauty. And one of the drawers, Susan came in there, and she said, you know, one of these drawers doesn't open. I'm like, it, it doesn't open easily, but it opened. So I kind of got her, I got her on a technicality and, and you know, proved her wrong. But the drawer opened just not easily, and it was tilted at a 30-degree angle. And she asked me, she goes, do we expect our babies to be changed on this? And she, she referred to it as the changing table of death. <laughs> All that wrong. And listen, she, she, she declared then, and I knew it, I knew it was coming. She said, I'm not going to ever ask you to build anything in our marriage. And I haven't. And that was part of the reason why I tried that, so that she would never ask me again. And I tell you the truth. I'm not a good builder. I don't fix things very well. So when Paul gives this illustration, look, I love builders. I love architects, by the way. I've got some good friends that are builders and architects. I like to have them close. They help us at the church and help me at our house. Uh, there's an old preacher joke, only two tools a man needs, um, telephone and a checkbook, and that's how uh, I, live, I live my life. I just don't build things very well. And so I, I know that I need to partner with somebody to get something built. And here's what we need to see from this text. I mean, Paul said it. To build the house that God desires for you to be, to be the building that God wants you to be, you need to partner with him and come alongside him and let him build into you. So I want to ask two questions. I think this text, uh, it summons us to ask these two questions. Real simple. They're both very straightforward. The first is this, what will I build my life with? What are the materials that need to go into the house that I'm building? A couple of years ago, there was a best-selling book called Designing Your Life. I bet some of you have heard of it. Some people did at the 930 and told me afterwards. Designing Your Life, like the book Atomic Habits, uh, was also not just a New York Times best-selling book, but it's also been used in classrooms, in academic, uh, collegiate settings, and business schools and such. So a very powerful book. And in this book, Designing Your Life, the subtitle is uh, How to Live a Life of Meaning that is Joy-Filled. And as I read the subtitle to the book that I read sort of recently... I was drawn to that because I thought that's very uh, Jesus-like, to invite us into a life of meaning that's filled with joy. Remember John 10, 10, quite famous, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That, that joker will knock over your house. Uh, he, doesn't have, he doesn't want to build good things in you. He, he's come to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come to give life and that that life might be abundant. And all the connotations there is a joy-filled life, a life full of meaning. So in this, in this verse here, Paul writes and he says, um, how are you going to design your life? This writer of the book, Designing Your Life, talks about five uh, traits. He talks about uh, curiosity, uh, having an, an awareness. He talks about having a bias toward action and reframing your perspective and then radically collaborating with other people. Those are five things he says. I think I'm down with all of them. I think they're all really good traits. But what does scripture teach and what is Paul saying here? He's not as direct as the book Designing Your Life where he lists the things here. Now he does in other places. Uh, read Galatians uh, 6, read Galatians 5, read the fruit of the spirit, the works of the flesh. But here he uses again metaphor. He says in this part, he says in the building part, the temple part, that everybody's constructing a life. And he mentions six materials that can go into your life and mine. He mentions gold and silver and precious stones. And then he mentions wood, hay, and stubble. Now, they're all strung together, but those are, they can be put, I think they're rightly divided into two subgroups, gold, silver, and precious stones, and wood, hay, 
and stubble. What, what does he mean? Well, the text itself brings clarity to that. It says that gold and silver and precious stones will withstand the fire. It will withstand the test of time and the ultimate day um, and the fire at the end. Now, what does that mean for modern American religious people? We get a little nervous at that word because, you know, you, you've, you've been burned by, no pun intended, by a fire and brimstone type of preacher. But fire as a metaphor in the Bible has a manifold meaning. But uh, in First Peter 1, it has the meaning of refining the goldsmith and the copper workers and all. Uh, your, your life, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeals that come your way. You will need to be tested, and the trials is what test you. Anybody ever notice that? I mean, I think we can all agree when things are going well, man, you're just you're strutting your stuff a little bit. And you're thinking, hey, man, I'm, I need to write a book. I need to do a TED Talk. Uh, I know how, I, I can figure that. I've got this stuff figured out. But when you have trials, when hard times hit, uh, you're, you're not really sure. You're questioning everything. You're questioning God. You're questioning the people around you. You're, uh, you're uncertain about everything. And it's the test that uh, present to us this refining and this disciplining. So fire has that meaning. But this reference here is to God's judgment. Can I just say it? It's to God's judgment. And I want to make sure, I say this from time to time at Fonder Church, but I want to make sure that we don't become so casual and cavalier around here that we don't leave room for God's judgment. Because, in fact, if God is an ultimate, God is love, God is love, and if God is love, God has wrath, and God has judgment, and listen to me, God has the final say. He's got the final say, and there will be a day in high-definition color when every secret and everything that has been hidden will be revealed. And he's saying to us, have a healthy sense of the fear of God in your life. Can I say that today to you? Have a, I'm not, everybody's not going to receive it, but have a healthy fear have a healthy sense of the reverence and fear of God. Ultimately, we will answer to him about the life that we have built and gold and silver and precious stones. He's saying there's materials that you can build your life with and it's going to last. But then there's materials you can live your life with. His metaphors are wood, hay, and straw. And these things will not stand the test of time. Uh, they won't stand. There's a writer named Eric Erickson. And he talks about he's one of the premier uh, organizational leaders and psychologists he talks about the phases of adult life. And at the end, he says, the, the last phase of adult life as we begin to really grow old. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a battle between integrity, he calls it, and despair. And as I understand those writings from that leadership guru, organizational psychologist, is that integrity, that's the stuff, to borrow Paul's words, that's the stuff of gold and silver and precious stones. That's what's, that's what, what's going to endure. Your integrity is going to endure. Your integrity is going to speak. But the wood, the despair is the wood, hay, and stubble. It's living in fear. It's not, uh, it, it, it's living with hypocrisy. It's being double-minded. It's hurrying through life and not leaving room for God. Can I just ask you this morning, who among us, your house is built on hurry? And you're just rushing and you're rushing and you're not leaving room for God. I, someday I'm going to give God room. Someday I'm going to work on my soul. Someday I'm going to think about what matters. But you're not giving room for him now. And you'll never become what you're not now becoming. What kind of house are you constructing? Let me uh, share with you um, from my experience a um, true story about or true comparison about two men that I know. Know, I know of them and in some ways got to know them and certainly know some of the people close to them. Both of them were leaders in organizations. Both of them have written books. They spoke at the same conferences um, on the same subjects. They ran in the same circles. And both of them similarly were impressive people. 
they enjoyed pretty much the same level of recognition and success. They were sought after and widely admired. One man, let's, let's just say the first man, the closer you got to him, the more you could see that he was humble and he was gentle and he was kind. You may say in the marketing world that people closest to him uh, would believe him, that he was, he was buying what he was selling, that there was a level of integrity uh, to his life. Those who saw him on the daily would say that he treated everybody the same, he, the peers, subordinates, uh, the wait staff at restaurants. When he was wrong, it was, uh, he could be easily corrected. He could own it and make amends. He was eager to atone for any of the mistakes or shortfalls that he had in his life. He opened up his life and he was transparent and he made time for laughter and love and the things that, that really matter. He, he experienced some great loss in his family, let me tell you. A child with leukemia uh, at, later in life and he knew loss and as he uh, grew older himself, he began to not only have a good succession plan, but he began to let go graciously of title and position. And he, it was a life that just was surrendered, like his, his own wife. You know, she tells my story. And if you're married, your spouse tells your story. If you're a leader, listen to me. The people closest to you are going to tell your story. They already do tell their story, your story. But this man, his story was that people around him, that they knew that uh, they were loved. And that he loved genuinely. And at the end of it all, on his funeral, he was surrounded um, by uh, a circle of friends. The stories that were told, lives touched, the joy that was produced, the life that, life that was given by his very life. The other man, again, similar recognition and success, same conferences, same speaking engagements, same book sales, et cetera, et cetera. But the people closest to him, if you ask the people that worked for him what he was like, they would describe fear and an intimidation and manipulation and always having to guess his mood and his motives. And his family largely felt neglected that he wasn't there. When he was there, he wasn't fully present. And the people that were close to him realized that there was a lot of his life that could be described as empty and lonely. And this man had a hard time of letting go because it was his kingdom. And he was clinging tightly to his kingdom, to his name, to the reputation, to the platform, to the brand that he built. And he began to be, uh, be paranoid and threatened by age itself and what was inevitably going to be lost. And at his funeral, at the end of his life, after positions and titles and success had been stripped away, after he had aged out of all of that, there was no one really around him that was bound to him by love. So this morning, two men that I know of and know, and I would say to you that over here is gold and silver and precious stones. And the second life I described to you is wood, hay, and stubble. So how are you building your life. What is going into it? Designing your life would say curiosity, a bias toward action, um, having an awareness, uh, being radically uh, collaborative with people. These are good traits to have. But I want to ask you, Daniel did it last week, to behold Jesus, to look at this life like no other. And to see what Jesus said and to see what, how his early followers lived and see what they said. 
And think about what's going into your life because, man, I would hate it. It's my job. Can I just say Hebrews 13 says that I need to preach the word among the leaders here and that we have a responsibility to oversee your souls. And it matters. So speaking into your soul today, I hope, I would say to you, man, be careful what you think matters right now. If it's a house of hurry, a house of neglecting God, a house... um, where you're missing the things that really matter. I just want to say in love, on Paul's authority, man, that's wood, hay, and stubble. That's wood, hay, and straw. And it's not going to pass through. Here's the second question. The first is, uh, what kind of house am I building with? What materials am I building with? Secondly, what foundation will I build my life on? I told you it was simple. Here, Paul says, uh, that foundation needs to be Jesus Christ. Did you expect to hear anything different at Fonder Church today? There's a whole lot of foundations that you could build on. But build on Jesus. Now, Paul mentions, I want to give a little context here. Paul says in chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, that there's three kinds of men, three kinds of people. He mentions the spiritual person. The spiritual person has made Jesus Christ their foundation. They're able to discern through the power of the Holy Spirit the works of God, the ways of God. They're learning and they're growing because they're a spiritual person. He describes the second person. This is chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The second person he describes is a natural person. It's not pejorative. It's just the truth. A natural person has made no room for God. A natural person has rejected God. A natural person will not spend eternity with God. But then, and this is a stuff of nice, healthy debate. I love my Reformed theological friends on this. They're always like, be careful preaching the carnal Christian. But the third person is this carnal Christian that he introduces to us in chapter 3. It's someone that's in Christ. Jesus is the foundation. They've invited Christ to come into their life. They just haven't grown spiritually. There's not a lot of fruit or evidence uh, in their life. But here's what Paul teaches. I just want to put it out there. And I want to leave room for the whole teaching of the Bible. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, hey, there's some of you at that end time. You know, you're going to say, Lord, Lord, I never knew you. You, you. You've deceived yourself to think that you're in. There's been no fruit, no, no growth in your life. And therefore, you're not a follower of Jesus. But Paul leaves some room here for the carnal Christian, the one that has accepted Jesus, that's got the foundation right, but that it hasn't let God construct their life. And what does he teach here? Did you pick up on it? He says, they get in, but barely. Which is no strategy for house construction, can I just say. You, like, you, you want to be frustrated? Then live as a carnal Christian. Make a commitment to Jesus, get baptized in these waters, and then live no differently. First of all, you need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith at all. But here Paul is saying that there are some among us, they're, they're carnal, they're not, they're not natural, they've accepted. There is a foundation, but they're not growing. And listen, you, it's, it's a frustrated life to live. It's a life that doesn't bear fruit as, it needs, as fruit needs to be born. And Paul is saying you're making it in, but the judgment he's talking about here is mentioned several places in the New Testament. And he's talking about not the, not the judgment that decides your salvation. Because if, if Jesus is the foundation, uh, salvation has been decided. Isn't that good? Like we all ought to take, and what a great motivator, by the way. If, Jesus, if you've invited Jesus in your life, salvation has been decided, but this determines rewards. This determines rewards. And Paul is writing saying that there is this spiritual man, and when you let God grow you as the field, the fruit of your life. When you let God grow you as a building, as in a temple, look what can happen. Uh, this is the results. And oh, what awaits you. The rewards that we share in eternity. You guys ever think much about that? I want to be clear. You're not going to be able to do enough good works to get yourself in heaven. Uh, that's not the gospel. A lot of people preach it, but it's not the gospel. But when you're in Christ 
and he has secured your salvation, when he is the foundation. Um, and by the way, Paul, if you go top, uh, bottom to top, he's talking about the foundation, then he's talking about the construction, and then he's talking about a final inspection. If you've moved into a new home recently, there was that final inspection, right? And that's, ah, oh, you're clear. And there's going to be, that's what Paul's writing about. And I want to put it in front of you because I'm your pastor and I love you. And I want to talk about that final day, that final day of judgment, that final time when your life and mine will pass through the fires and will it be made of wood, hay, and stubble or gold and silver and precious stone. Real quick, the final metaphor, real quick, there's a few passages here. Uh, when, when he uses temple, I, I want you to know this, just, it's Bible facts, but it could have some bearing on your understanding of Scripture. Uh, this, is just a, this refers to a physical place. Like you're in a physical location. We share it, 3327 Old Canton Road. He will oppose, no context here, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that's called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So that's actually referring to a physical location in Jerusalem. Next passage, it's the next letter, 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is us together. So the last verse on temple is, is this. We'll get to it in a few weeks when we get into some of the juicy stuff. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. So here's the thing. If you're in Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're back there and you're in Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're seated, seated in the middle your body, and you're in Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we have this collection of people around the room in Christ whose bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that matters. It matters. You're valued. It's not cheap. Um, there's dignity and worth to who you are. Possess it in a way that honors Christ and that's good for your soul. So you, but listen, he's talking here, and I don't want us to miss this. He's talking here in 1 Corinthians 3 about a temple that we, God is building us as a temple together. This is really important. And in verse 16, he says that in 1 Corinthians 3, 16. If you have an open Bible, look down at that. 1 Corinthians 3.16, hey, for you are the temple. We are the temple. God is building a temple. Now the, the good stuff, the last verse I read to you, alarming for modern ears. What does he say? If someone's going to mess or destroy with God's temple, uh, God will destroy them. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. You know, sometimes I want to preach in such a way that's palpable for everybody. That doesn't offend any of our sensibilities. That makes it go down easy. But here's what I want to say. God is saying that this is a good thing. Like if, if you're a believer in Christ, you ought to, this is a weird way to say it, but you ought to be proud of this. Because if there's love, there's wrath. And, and God, the cross itself, remember he's riding in Corinth and they got everything mixed up and they were ladder climbing. And he's like, here's the cross. And the cross is this beam. It's the instrument of torture in the Roman world, an object of cruelty. And he's saying, this is the way to live. Die to yourself and live for Jesus. Jesus died on this cross for you. It really, really does matter. God's wrath was satisfied on the cross. We sing songs about it, but I don't think we appreciate the meaning because to truly love is also to hate evil and injustice. And you know it. There's something deep. If we had coffee, we could talk more about this. But there's that part of you. Got everybody, you've got it in you. Even if you're not a person of faith and you're just visiting today, you're, you're not a Christian. You have this in you. It's latent within you. And it reflects the very image of God. And Paul is saying to us, man, the temple matters. 
And if somebody's messing with, so let me just drop a few verses. If you're taking notes, I'll give you a few. Read them later and email me some gratitude later. Uh, Acts chapter 5, James chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 to 30. Acts 5, James 5, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28 to 30. There are three examples in the New Testament. We're not going old, we're going new. In the New Testament where God's like, hey, somebody's messing with, the, with my house. Somebody's messing with God's temple. I'm going to take care of them. And now be careful with this. In Romans 12, it says, live at peace with all people. All right? Everybody live at peace with everyone as much as possible. And then vengeance, when you want to exact vengeance, you're not, you don't have God's justice in you. So just be very careful. Leave that to God. You leave that vengeance to God because God's got it. You, can I tell you what I found after 56 years of living? Is that God's got it. I'm telling you. There have been times where I'm like, God, look at that fool. And God says, I got it. I can't preach it from up here, but let me kind of just tell you, God got it. God took care of it. And we look at a church today. And we look at power grabs and we look at hidden sins and secrets. And we look at people who were supposed to be shepherds and acted like wolves. Who uh, destroyed the work of God and hurt people. And we see cover up of these sins. We see institutions protecting their image as opposed to going to survivors. And I'm just telling you. Those who bring destruction will receive destruction from God. And I want us to leave room for that. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to let God be God. So you are a field. You are a building. You are a temple. And my two questions is what's going into the building, the house that you're constructing, what are you building with? And then secondly, what's the foundation of it? I looked at some other preachers. Preachers do this, you know, because there's the internet. But I looked at some other preachers. Well, you know, if they were preaching this passage, what would they preach? And I, I checked out Tony Evans. Y'all know Tony Evans? If you don't know Tony, you need to check out Tony. You know what Tony preached if he was here? And I know y'all want him, so don't think about him. But if, I mean, I would want Tony here. But he's, you know. But you know what Tony would preach on this passage? Straight up financial stewardship. Straight up. Because you can't read, Tony's right, you can't read this passage about gold, silver, precious stone, hello, and wood, hay, and stubble. And not think about our resources and our treasures. And think about Jesus who said, you know, before he said, where your treasures, there your heart be also. And he says, you know, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth come in and eat. I found a moth in my closet the other day. I'm like, ugh. I thought of Jesus. And I was like, okay, you're right, Jesus. Let me, you know, let me get it out of here. But moths come in apparently. I, they, they still, moths still exist. And they come in and they can eat up your, I guess if we left for a decade or two, they'd eat up my garments or something. But anyway, moths come in and rust. I mean, how many stuff do you have rusty in your attic or your garage or around you? Uh, rust takes, thieves come in and steal. We saw a robbery in the middle of the day a couple of weeks ago down our street. Thieves came in and stole a vehicle at 10 a.m. on a Saturday. This is what happens in this world. And look, don't put your hope in this world. And oh, by the way, don't wait around on your heart to get right toward giving. Poor strategy. Put your, go with your money. Count on Jesus. He will provide for you. Let it lead. Man, when we write that check, it's an act of worship. Every month we give it. And then we go, but he's got us. He, you know, he's always provided for us. He's always got it. Man, and I would hate for you to live most of your life for yourself. Padding your accounts and pampering your children. And thinking about this life and missing these great rewards. I'm done. Lauren, you want to come up? You got to stop somewhere. That was abrupt. They tell you not to do that in communication schools, but 
So young people, if, you, if, y'all, if y'all preach one day, don't do that. <laughs> Would you stand with me? And uh, I'm going to invite you to sing with us as the team readies themselves. Uh, we're going to sing just a, a little bit of the song we sang, I Will Build My Life. It might have a little more meaning now. Um, but uh, we'll sing it out loud. I'll invite you to not go, but to stay with us and sing. And then um, I'm going to invite Van, our missions pastor, up in a moment. to. Um, we're going to pray as we won't have an invitational prayer time today. But uh, we're going to pray over a group of people that are be leaving us this next week on missions. So it's an honor to do that as a church. So uh, are you all close to being ready, Lord? Um, let's sing together.